This is Matt Johnson and sitting in with Superintendent Tim Throne this morning to record a podcast, not just for our staff, but also for our parent stakeholders in the community. And our goal and aim of our podcast is we can create a world-class education today to shape tomorrow's leaders. And our mission is to provide an education that challenges all students to achieve their maximum potential in academics, arts, and athletics and prepares them for to succeed in a global society. Tim, why don't you uh, help us out this morning as we look at and understand how school aid funding just in general works within the state. This is an exciting topic. <laughs> this will definitely <laughs> be a morning, Monday morning wake up, I'm sure. There you go. But you're, you're absolutely right, though, Tim. This is a conversation that most staff, we could say it's, it's enough in the weeds in their world that they don't really have to worry about it. But at the same time, it's very important for them to at least be at a cursory level of understanding so they can inform stakeholders that they have conversations with that might be hearing rumblings or concerns or following how Lansing's making decisions, what for, what what not. So it is important. It's important for us to Absolutely. understand where it comes from and what it does. So the topic this morning, school funding in general, just like what is an FTE and what does that mean and how are local schools funded? So... Mr. Throne. All right. So, yeah, let's start out with a few basic things. So, FTE stands for full time equivalent. So, that is one student taking a full set of classes all day, 1.0. Doesn't matter the grade or the school, that it's a full time student, they're a 1.0. All right. So, why are you making that difference, Tim? In Oxford, because we have grown our programming, our virtual academy, our other schools, not every student is a full-time equivalent, a 1.0 FTE. Most school districts around us and most in the state, most of their students are the traditional 1.0 student. So... Tim Throne goes to Oxford Middle School, 8th grade. He's there all day. He's a 1.0. You combine part-time students, those students who take one, two, three, four classes, but not a full set of classes, combine all of them down. So easiest way to think of that, all right, two half-time students, this student is 0.5, another student 0.5, combine them together, they equal a 1.0 student. So there's a difference between full-time equivalent and headcount. So Oxford this year, we're probably going to be somewhere around 6,700 FTE. Headcount, we're probably over 9,000 individual students. So not a big deal, but there is a difference between the two, and you need to understand that. Let's talk a second um, just so that we can help our stakeholders that are our employees understand some specific roles and things that we're doing. Um, We as a district at Central Office have been um, under the mindset of how do we do business and education 
So we've we've created some real markets for ourselves to sell some of our education opportunities, and we've created Oxford Educational Opportunities, which is like an, an entity. We have somebody yep. that leads that. So can you kind of help us understand that, how that relates to our relationship with private schools, how that just then spurs some of those shared time agreements, whether it's St. Joe's or we actually have a long list of some of those schools. But help us understand that a little bit and some of our leadership that's leading those roles. So... I'm going to um, pull back on the throttle here, the the joystick on the plane. We're going to go up to 30,000 feet at the very broad level. Going back, gosh, I'd say probably 2007, 2008, we started actively looking for specific markets that we could sell our products and services to that I would say maybe the traditional public school district, even the private uh, school district or non-public school district, was not thinking about. All right, Tim, give us some examples. Well, uh, let's start looking at can we sell our curriculum that we have paid for, that we have bought uh, with our own people's time that we have created ourselves. Can we sell that curriculum to others? Yep, we can. Can we sell professional development to other school districts, other teachers? Yes, we can. Okay, those students and teachers, they don't have to be in a public school district in Michigan. They can be uh, teachers in other states and other countries. So whether you are actively going after students, again, both in our back door, within the state of Michigan, within the United States, or outside the United States, we're constantly looking at what needs are out in the marketplace what services can we provide that people are willing to pay for from a student perspective, from a teacher perspective, professional learning, from a district perspective? Can we sell curriculum, those types of things? And so when you start looking at potential markets and all of these different lenses, you then also look at, okay, can we attract not only full-time students, but part-time students? And um, w- one of the ways in Michigan that uh, public schools are allowed to offer their classes to non-public students, so students in private or parochial schools, is through something called shared time. So you brought up St. Joe. Uh, St. Joe's a K-8 parochial school down in Lake Orion. For a number of years, we have provided their non-core classes uh, for those students. So we've sent language teachers down there, PE teachers, art teachers, music teachers, yeah, any type of teacher you can think of that um, is not teaching a core class. We can also uh, do that for numerous um, 
non-public schools, as well as homeschool students. Again, non-core classes. Um, if you're not a core class, then it's what? It's an elective. So we, in essence, provide electives to students uh, all across the state that um, they want to pick up those classes in a non-full-time manner. So we, um, yeah, we get a lot of students who take one, two, three, four classes. So in essence, we have the ability to offer an elective where they couldn't supply the teacher and have the finances and the resources to do it. So we're kind of a service for them. Is that true? Would sure. that be correct? Way to sure. see it as well? Yeah. So think of um, th- think of districts, again, whether it's public or non-public or homeschool students, that they want to let their student take uh, some type of course or non-core class, but they don't have enough students to run that class. Okay, they need whatever, 28 students to put in there. Well, they may only have two kids who want to take Spanish 3 or Japanese or any of our electives, whether it's language, uh, math electives, it doesn't doesn't matter. Any type of elective, we can take one and two students at a time and put in our, our courses and offer it to them. And that has been a big need in the marketplace that we have been working hard to fill. So in, in our headcount number... The difference between our FTE is the number of students that are actually receiving some sort of classroom instruction from us, adding to that FTE count number. So really that FTE, though, is a translation of those head counts converted down into full. So Correct. each class that a student might take, how can you help me understand the value or the percentage of what one student Yep. And we have an elementary value, we have a middle school value, we have a high school value, right? Exactly that. So our high school offers seven periods. So, um, yeah, if that student was to come to Oxford High School and they were to take this one elective, I would get one-seventh of an FTE. If it was just one semester class, I would get one-fourteenth of an FTE. Right, mm-hmm. so one seventh divided in in half, one fourteenth. If it's a full year class, then I get one seventh. Same thing at the middle school and elementary. Uh, Oxford Virtual Academy, I believe they've got six periods in the day, and so if I take, uh, gosh, I don't know. There's hundreds. Chinese, Chinese 4, and I'm taking it through my virtual academy, and it's a semester class. All right, one sixth divided in half for the whole year, one twelfth, I get one twelfth of an FTE. This year, the governor just signed a new foundation allowance, and so for Oxford this year, it is $8,111. And that's that's an increase of roughly two hundred and forty dollars over what it was last year. <coughs> Oxford is a base foundation district, which means 
we are the lowest funded. There are other districts who get more than $8,111. They may get $8,500, $9,500, districts all the way up into, I think, $12,000, $13,000 per student. Um, yeah, and so Oxford is at the... Uh, is it the base foundation amount? And uh, I think the other important thing to, to realize, as long as we're talking about budgets, is that for many districts, for many years, we've heard about you know student counts going down. So this past Wednesday was our fall student count day. Uh, we have yet to get our, our numbers, but the... What most districts attempt to do is at least hold your student count numbers level because when you start losing students or your FTE starts going down, your revenue number starts to go down, and that's, that's when you got to start, start making cuts. So it's always best to, if at all possible, keep your... FTE counts constant or increasing so that you can be adding revenue to your budget, not taking it away. And in that, we get our security for our teachers, job job placement, what, what our buildings look like. Um, back in 2007-8, my involvement in the district came in around 2010. Um, we were at a place in the state where um, the failing schools was the big conversation, and the state changed some laws and some things that allowed us to basically take what I refer to as our our business side of doing education. We have teachers on a contract; they're contracted to teach one to, and the numbers fluctuated obviously as we've um, gone through different contractual phases. But looking at the elementary contract, are we teaching close to those ratios? We as a district ask some hard business questions. Where are we at? What are we doing? Again, at each level. Can you talk through a little bit of the history of how we embrace then the decision-making for school of choice, looking at the bigger picture of wanting to be able to offer more for all students, not just I wouldn't use the word our students. They're all our students. doesn't matter where they've driven from, north, south, east, or west. They're a wildcat. Um, and we often sometimes fight people talking about our students. And I think the hour they're referring to is they pay a property tax, just like an income tax, just like a sales tax. They've got a tax in their mind that they think they're carrying the schools. Can you help me understand a little bit of two things? The school choice movement, how we address that, and the, and the really the preceding question of, how does my property tax fund the whole school system? Do I fund the whole school system as a taxpayer? And what does that percentage look like boiled down to our budget? So there's really multiple questions to answer there. All right. So going back to 1996, prior to Proposal A, the majority of a school district's revenue was collected locally through property taxes and through millages. After Proposal A was voted in, the state added 2% to the sales tax. All of your um, companies collected that sales tax, and this additional $0.02 went into what's called the school aid fund. And out of that school aid fund, that is now 
uh, in Oxford's case, 80% of our revenue comes from the state, comes from that sales tax, that additional 2% that was added. Do we have additional revenue that's also collected locally? Yes. So we have our, our, um, our debt millage. So in Oxford, our debt millage is, I think it's 7.9 mils. That's levied upon everybody, and that pays off uh, all of our old uh, debt, you know, whether it's been bonds to build buildings or do improvements or those types of things. And then a couple of years ago, we passed our first ever sinking fund, and um, that was, I think, under a mill. It was a portion of a mill, and we said we're only going to do that for five years and um, it was for these specific purposes. And so uh, that is how we get up to that 8111, all right? The majority, far, far majority of that is collected through sales tax at the state. Although, as you know, uh, locally, especially if you're a business owner, we also have our non-homestead millage. So if you're a business owner, it's not your home, not your primary resident, um, we collect, the state assumes that you collect 18 mills. That's the same for everybody across the state, that you collect 18 mills on that non-homestead property, and that um, also makes up a portion of that other 20%. So that's that's sort of the overall funding vehicle. Um, when it comes to uh, schools of choice, I'm going to, talks uh, some specifics and then I'm going to back up and talk philosophical for a minute. So specifically school of choice um, when the when the state went over to proposal A and we started opening up school of choice, the state wanted districts to in essence be more competitive with one another so that I'll just use an example. We're uh, not just talking athletically in football. we're talking competitively in the classroom. Well, Originally, it was only revolved around academics mm-hmm. and really had nothing to do with academics or the arts, but I would say that... Athletics or the arts. Athletics, sorry. yeah, I'm sorry, athletics or the arts. I think over time, that has uh, certainly come into play when parents think of schools of choice. So, back in the old day, prior to Proposal A... If I lived in Brandon Township and I was a part of the Brandon School District, those boundaries, that is where I went to school, and that was my option. If a parent didn't like that, they could pay tuition and go to another district depending upon what their local policy was, or I could send them to a private or parochial school. When Schools of Choice came into play, basically uh, districts who... Uh, said, yes, we would be schools of choice, opens your borders up, and it basically says, hey, um, if you live in Brandon or Lapeer or any of the other districts that touch us or surround us or any of the other um, counties that touch us, basically you can come to Oxford, and Oxford would collect that foundation allowance, and that student would now... um, by way of choice, come over to to Oxford. And so 
um, th- this is what I think sometimes people don't understand. And so while uh, from a competitive standpoint, does Oxford want to become the best that it can be? Absolutely. Do we want to bring our best every day and become our best? That's what we're striving to do. In doing so, we're raising the bar. We're not only raising the bar for our own students, but we're also competitively raising that bar for those districts around us. While I think that that we have done a great job in our programming, and um, that is evident by the number of students who, who come to us through schools of choice, Here's the philosophical or reality portion of it. Just because um, I'm sitting here in Oxford and I want us to become our best, that does not mean that I hope Brandon doesn't become their best also. Correct. So I think our gut reaction... Okay, normally in athletics is, okay, I'm competing against Brandon. All right, there's a winner and a loser. All right, well, in education, I don't think there's a zero-sum game in the sense that just because Oxford wins doesn't mean Brandon loses. Listen, the closer I get to retirement, the closer I realize I'm probably going to be needing a lot more services in in the health industry, whether it's nursing, doctors, you know, pharmacists, whatever. We don't want to be the only silo pushing out kids into those fields and in those careers and heading down those pathways. Hey, I may need a kid who's going to be a doctor someday who's going to Brandon. Do I want him to receive the best education possible? I do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely I do. Right. And so... Um, while it's competitive in nature because if that student comes to your school, you collect that foundation allowance, in reality, school districts don't want other districts to be harmed, right? I don't, I don't wish ill will on Brandon if... Um, Our intent is not to put them out of business because they can't fund their education. Exactly, exactly. And that, I think, is is sort of one of the states that we're at in in Michigan whereby our, our politicians and our leaders have to figure out for themselves how are we going to make this work? I realized that there was a point in time where public schools needed to be better than what they were. But um, I think that we've also come to a point in time where we want all Michigan students to have the ability to receive a great education. We want our students to be productive citizens, and we can't somehow arbitrarily create a system where we where we are picking winners and losers. Well, I think you and I are often faced with this question from a central office point of view. Um, 
Matt, when do we stop marketing Oxford schools? Tim, when do we stop marketing for growth, for opportunity to bring in new programs? Where you and I have privately have had these conversations that people don't understand is we had to come up with what is the maximum number of students in each of our classes, in each of our buildings, at each of our levels, so that we can actually bring the optimum education, the best education, as opposed to just being the greedy business owner that has more and more and more, we had to dial back and say, okay, we're going to put it in kind of neutral and coast down this hill for a while so that we understand some evaluation. So help us think through uh, Deputy Superintendent Weaver's mindset, that your mindset and that, the cabinet's mindset, the board's mindset, so that we really understand school aid funding as a, not just a dollar business category, but as a, we're, we're bringing the best education possible in Oxford community to our community and think through that a little bit. So here's the reality with school funding in the state of Michigan at this year, $8,111 per student. We do not generate enough revenue per student that gives districts enough flexibility to um, be able to rec- react quickly to changes in their environment. I'm going to state this a different way. Our overhead costs are so high such that if every building is not 90 plus percent filled to capacity, the district is losing money on that building. And in normal business, you'd look at your return on your investments and you'd say, whoa, we're way out of balance and we're going to make some shifts right now. That's right. And so um, going back to our previous uh, comments about why it's important to try to keep your student counts consistent and not drop, districts that have seen the number of students uh, decline, okay, those students don't all come out of one class, one grade, and so... You don't just graduate all your seniors and then you have a, a hole left. That, that's right. So what, what happens is, is you have to begin the conversation of consolidation. I cannot keep the same amount of buildings open if I have, doesn't matter, 100, 200 students less. Why? Because, again, for the amount of funding we get... And the amount of overhead cost, I'm, I'm paying the same for plowing, for electric, for heating, cooling. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm paying a principal, administrator. I'm paying all of these costs the same, whether that building is 50% occupied or 95% occupied. And it's just, it's such that, um, yeah, my personal belief is that your buildings have to be 90-plus percent occupied uh, in today's state. Otherwise, you're losing money. And if it's not, then you got to figure out, okay, how do, I, how do I close buildings? How do I consolidate down? How do I move students around? And those are really, really hard conversations. Why? Because, hey, my kids or I went to this building when I was young, what do you mean uh, you're going to close this building? What do you mean I can't go to my neighborhood sc- school because it's going to be closed and I got to go two or three miles away? Well, 
if you don't have the number of students to keep that building filled to capacity, then you really have no other choice. And, and the frankest way to say it is we're creating debt. Yeah, or you're just your expenses are higher than your revenue coming in. Correct. And you have to find a way to be more efficient. And the only way to do that is to uh, fill your buildings to capacity. And those buildings that are not, um, you, you, you gotta you gotta start consolidating them down. And so that is just where schools are at today. And so. Again, I go back to, um, I don't know, I just, I think it's important theoretically that we also understand that while we are in a competitive school of choice environment, uh, it doesn't mean that as a public educator, I don't want the best for those other districts. I do. We all do. We want the best for those students too, because... We may need, be needing those mm-hmm. students. Yeah, what they're doing, what they're studying. Hey, I'm, I'm, I may need a new roof put on my house in five years, and so I want uh, I want that kid to be trained uh, to the best of their ability, whether it's in Oxford or someplace else. I want them to have those skills, and and so um, I just I think we get it backwards somewhere in our mind, and I don't know why we intuitively think like that, but. I, th- I think it's just where we've where we've come in education, in that uh, everything is competitive, everything's a zero sum game, and if there's winners, that means there has to be losers. And I think philosophically, as well as practically, at the state level and locally, we have to be creating and developing policy that helps to create an environment whereby we are trying to uh, produce the best education possible for our students at the same time not creating winners and losers. How does the state and the state laws and the state government affect school funding? One of the words I wrote down uh, here on my notes as we're discussing from something you said earlier is um, my understanding of what the state's requirement of us as a district having to maintain a specific fund balance, resources in the bank to be able to function off of. Um, so you're not going into debt, but if you continue to not address those, um, I would say, out of balance spendings in a building, you do eat that fund balance gone, which has a specific law and percentage to it, which I'll let you discuss. But how do how do how do we address and understand um, the state involvement as opposed to local government involvement on our own needs? Um, I know that's a whole other topic for a whole other conversation. But how do we see the state government affecting our funding, and what do we need to know? What's been updated within the state? We just rolled through uh, into a new budget. How does FTE monies get paid out to us? So. Uh, You've asked a lot of questions there. So for Oxford, I think this year our fund balance percent is probably going to be like 15, uh, maybe 16%. Uh, It's hovered the last few years right around 16%. And that's Uh, of this year's set budget? Yes. So for the 2019-2020 budget, 
um, I think our fund balance is yeah going to be right around that that fifteen percent somewhere in there. Uh, the state actually says that once you start getting to five percent, I forget the name of the district that you're called, but uh, you you basically you go on a watch list when you start getting down towards a five percent fund balance, and if you hit that or go below that five percent, then there are certain things that that jump in that the state uh, the state will do or um, or that a district has to do in order to uh, maintain that fund balance and, and, and grow it back up. So, yeah, there's a lot of competing interest for that limited revenue, and that is why uh, districts, whether it's, you know, competitive to get as many FTEs as possible because every head count is, you know, worth X thousands of dollars and uh, that's how you grow your revenue. So you want to grow your headcount uh, and you want to keep your buildings full. You want to keep them at capacity. You're constantly looking at how can we reduce cost? How can we drive um, the cost of, of different things down? That's that's why most of your districts are involved in co-ops and, and common purchasing to, to make sure that we're getting the best deals possible. It takes all of those things all working together in order to um, have districts try and, and balance their budgets. Looking at the latest update from the state, they've agreed 81's 11's our number. Uh, state FTE payout to the school district. Tell us how we receive our funds. What's just the physical function of all that look like? Yeah, so we just had our our student count, like I said, last Wednesday. Uh, we'll be submitting those numbers to the state. They come back. They uh, a local um, pupil accountant from the ISD comes out, audits your numbers, makes sure that, that you've counted everything correctly. And basically, we um, get monthly payments from the state. And so let's just um, we'll we'll use some round numbers. Let's say that. Uh, Oxford's number this fall is eight thousand. Well, we don't get eighty one hundred eleven dollars times eight thousand. We don't get that all in one check. You get them in monthly checks. But what the state also does is they um, they balance your spring count with your fall count. So let's say that uh, yeah, this fall. Uh, our count was eight thousand. Let's say in the spring it was seven thousand. Therefore, we would be getting paid eighty-one eleven on seventy-five hundred students. So they average those out, and that's actually what you get paid. You get a a monthly state aid payment uh, from the state that comes in. Uh, we get one every month except for the month of September. And so districts need to make sure that they have enough money in the bank to pay their bills uh, during that month. But, um, but yeah, uh, we, we get those. And so the, the state is just uh, every day, every month, collecting that extra 2% on the sales tax that's going into the school aid fund. And the, the state, in turn, takes money out of that school aid fund and sends those payments to districts. Uh, a portion of that money also is going to 
um, in recent years, it's it's just it's been going up and up and up, and that is to um, help fund our our cost for retirement, and so um, so employee and benefit costs just continue to just creep and creep and creep up. Yeah. So the the government many years ago said that hey you uh, you have this liability out there. You've got these retirees, and their pensions are a set amount. You have to account for how much you're going to owe them, not only today, but in the future. And you need to start funding that. And so uh, Michigan has been doing a a really good job uh, the last eight years um, in that I think with... um, Governor Snyder, having an accounting background, he understood the importance of of not racking up all this debt that can't be paid or just kicking the can down the road. And um, the state has done a, a much better job at funding not only today but future liabilities when it when it comes to pensions. That's why I was um, personally. Um, extremely happy with Governor uh, Whitmer when she refused to take the bait of funding today's road issues with future pension money. Um, Man, we have worked so hard the last eight, nine, ten years to getting that under control. It's, It's like I don't know. The only thing I can even equate it to is is like you're consolidate all of your credit card bills down to one, and you've been making payments, and you finally got it under control. And someone says, "Hey, we're we're making these payments. This is doable now. Hey, let's go out and 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 buy a whole bunch of new appliances. And it, it doesn't doesn't matter that we don't have money to pay for those appliances today. Let's just charge them because because we can. Okay, no, we don't want to do that." And, um, yeah, as I, uh, I'll say it selfishly as a person who's getting closer to retirement too, uh, I, I don't want our, our state government, um, messing around and, and using those dollars to pay for roads today. There has to be a, a better and different way. And so I really appreciate her sticking to her guns and not allowing, um, all of the work that has been done and investments that have been made into protecting those pensions and paying those future pension liabilities down uh, to go towards roads. But, um, yeah, that's the state of the budget. The, the governor last week signed uh, a budget into place. She vetoed almost a, a billion dollars worth of line items. Out of that nearly billion dollars 900 and i think it was 60 some million something like that about 145 million or right around 10 percent was line item vetoes um out of the school aid fund and so uh a whole bunch of different categories we don't have time to go into that today but um but yeah that's that's sort of the state of the budget where we're at and I think there is hope that both the governor as well as the legislature will get back together, 
work things out so that um, some of those things that were vetoed can be um, can be put back in. But that's that's where we're at today. What we do know is we're set on the eighty one eleven, and that we will get those payments on a monthly basis. In conclusion of this broadcast and this conversation, what would you end that you could summarize to most encourage your staff and even the parents and stakeholders in our community? What can you summarize for us? It can be a different topic. It might not even be school aid funding. Well, it's... Um, we started our year. We had a welcome back. Yeah, I guess I would just like to thank both our employees as well as the parents and students for a really great start to the school year. Uh, we were only a few days in, and it, it felt like the students were already getting back into a, a good routine, and our employees were back. And so, uh, first and foremost, I want to um, thank everybody for a really good start to the, the school year. Uh, this past Friday and Saturday, we had our homecoming and homecoming festivities, and so um, that's always a, a great time of the year. I was walking down the parade route both uh, before the start and after the start. And, man, there was just, I don't know, thousands of kids around. And you could just hear all this activity. And it was really, really exciting to, to hear that. And so, um, so that's good. Uh, for Oxford, for us, for our community, I guess I want people to know that that with all of the budget discussions and maybe anxiety over whether things were going to be signed, not signed, that um, that we're okay. We've we've got enough fund balance that we can pay our bills and and do those types of things. And so, uh, yeah, we're off to a good start. And we are going to, um, every day, try to uh, try to bring our best and become our best. And in those regards, we will uh, hopefully uh, be fulfilling our, our mission and vision. And there's a saying that goes around here when we're done things and we celebrate things. It starts and says something like, It's a great day to be a wildcat. Thanks for listening. If you have any future topics or broadcasts you'd like to hear Superintendent discuss, uh, Superintendent Throne, that is, discuss, uh, just feel free to leave a note, comment, email us, and uh, we'll figure out what we can do to help fulfill that and bring that information forward. Thanks for listening.